Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Everyone has an opinion about social media. Yeah, you know, you remember 15 years ago or so in the early days of Facebook and and Twitter, most people had a really positive view of social media. They were reconnecting with friends and seeing family pictures. It was opening up new sources of information. So I think we all thought of this as generally a good thing. But now, many of us blame social media for a lot of things that have gone wrong in recent years. But are they right? We'll complicate the narrative with Chris Bale. Social media is not going away, right? We're going to continue to use it. But we're also early in the story of social media. So what's the future going to look like? And might we be able to intervene before these processes become so locked in that they're irreversible in order to outline a different future for social media? And I think never has there been more opportunity than right now. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? We're recording this show during a week of chaos on Capitol Hill with the historic ouster of the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So you might ask, dear listener, what on earth does this have to do with social media? We're seeing the the kind of intensity and anger and chaos that sometimes played out in social media now playing out in Congress. Republican Congressman Matt Gates, who led the push to remove McCarthy, you know, he seems like one of that new generation of performative politicians. They are more focused on their social media following and their kind of individual status than they are on playing a role within an institution to achieve some set of goals. Yeah, there are both Democrats and Republicans who have used Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to push politics often to the margins, to the extremes. Uh, Compromise is a dirty word for these kinds of politicians, and working out the details of legislation, which was what they were elected to do, is hardly the stuff of of Twitter clicks or, or headlines. You know, for years, and we've done a lot of podcasts on this, we and others have focused on social media as being one of the biggest drivers of these kinds of changes. But is that really the answer? Is this all due to social media? Our guest is Professor Chris Bale, founder of the Polarization Lab at Duke University, and he's the author of the 2021 book, Breaking the Social Media Prism. He studies political tribalism, extremism, and social psychology using data from social media as well as research from computational social science. That's a real mouthful there, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Uh, So, Chris Bale, thank you for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Hey, thanks for having me. You've written that you believe 
that the rapidly growing gap between social media and real life is one of the most powerful sources of political polarization right now. First, what is the difference between social media and, and real life? I think we've all experienced it to some degree. You know, people tend to emphasize positive things or, or minimize negative things if we're talking about Facebook or you know, if we're, we're talking about a platform like Twitter, now X, we often have to remind ourselves that the news we see on Twitter is not necessarily real life. TikTok, you know, like, is everybody as funny as they are on TikTok in real life? Probably not. But I think the deeper and more important examples relate to our politics and just how extreme everything has gotten online and how that belies the reality offline where, according to the numbers, we're much less polarized. Speaking of, of real life, uh, Chris is joining us from outside Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where we can hear the seasonal cicadas in the background, I think. So do not adjust the controls on your podcast machine. I think that's just part of the, the background audio. But Chris, you said something really interesting that intrigued me. We've all heard a lot about filter bubbles, about this idea that when we go on social media, we construct an envelope of like-minded people around us. And so we only hear news and opinions that confirm our own opinions. And, and that's why people get more and more extreme. And you have some research that actually challenges that idea. This idea has become so pervasive, the echo chamber or the filter bubble. You know, the filter bubble, meaning that algorithms reinforce our human tendency to surround ourselves with like-minded people, has become, you know, so widespread that it, that it often goes unchallenged. And one of the first things we wanted to do, my collaborators and I in the Duke Polarization Lab, was to try to see what would happen if you took people outside their echo chambers. And so in 2017, we recruited about 1,200 Twitter users who are either Republicans or Democrats. And we offered them up to $30 to follow a Twitter bot that they were told would tweet 24 times a day. Now, we didn't tell them what the bot was going to tweet about. And in the beginning, it just uh, tweeted pleasant landscapes. And then gradually, we increased the number of messages people saw from people with opposing political views. And what happened? Yeah, so what we what we expected to see, and I think what most people expected would happen, is that those people who were exposed to the other side would gradually begin to moderate their views, or they might realize at least that there's two sides to every story. And instead, we saw very little evidence of moderation. In fact, we saw the opposite. Most people, particularly Republicans, became more entrenched in their pre-existing views when we took them outside their echo chamber. So this means that if we are exposed to uncomfortable ideas, we don't necessarily moderate our opinions or become more reasonable? I don't want to take it that far. Remember that we were looking at Twitter, which at the time was a particularly polarizing place. We're talking about the one-year anniversary of the election of Donald Trump. And Twitter is an unusual platform insofar as it's very public and it you know, tends to incentivize a kind of extreme behavior, perhaps more so than other platforms. And remember also that we're exposing people to relatively high profile, what you might call elite accounts, right? These are things like politicians and journalists. And these are people who often benefit from saying extreme things. 
And so we can't say from this research that if we simply began to expose an ordinary Republican to an ordinary Democrat on Twitter, that things would be the same. But we can say that if we expose people to those high profile accounts, it, it does seem to, to, to make them double down in their pre-existing views. Perhaps in this modern world of engagement, where engagement is often driven by negative emotions, there are incentives for people to get engagement by becoming more extreme in their statements. So if I'm a Republican and I'm hearing you know, Nancy Pelosi say, well, of course, Republicans are all on the verge of becoming fascists. That doesn't make me <laughs> moderate my views. You know, that I could see becoming more entrenched. Or if I'm a liberal and I'm getting all these tweets from Donald Trump, I don't think that's going to make me more accommodating. So do you think the fact that these are high profile people, that high profile people in this period were maybe more extreme in their statements than they would have been in other eras. What do you think of this idea? Does that have something to do with the results you found? I think it's part of it. Now, we didn't select for people who were particularly polarizing. So people didn't usually see someone as partisan as a, say, a Rand Paul on the right or a Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the left. In fact, most people were exposed to more moderate opinion leaders. However, when we went to talk to these people, so after we, did this inter after we did this experiment, we went and interviewed a very large group of people who repeated the experiment a year later. And what we learned there was that people don't sort of calmly and deliberately consider the opposing views of a, let's say you're a Democrat, uh, a David Brooks on the right, right? A sort of center right, very amenable to a lot of liberal ideas. David Brooks messages in a news feed are quickly overshadowed by whatever Ted Cruz said that day or whatever Donald Trump said that day. So I do think that part of it is sensational emotional content. But but it's also true that, you know, we were feeding people more moderate content and, and that didn't seem to help very much. Let's talk about how social media distorts the political landscape. Your book is called Breaking the Social Media Prism. Why is social media a prism? Well, I think to answer this question, we have to scrutinize why we use social media in the first place. If you log on to Twitter or, or Facebook or now Threads, I would submit you are probably not going to observe a cool, rational competition of ideas. I would argue you're going to observe a competition of identities. It's really not about convincing anyone. In fact, when we started to talk to people about why they use social media in this experiment, we learned that almost no one thinks they're going to change anybody else's mind. And yet they spend hours, in many cases each day, engaging in sort of partisan warfare online. And so the, the interesting question I think is why? And I think the answer is that really social media is about status. It's about, you know, winning and taking down the other side and impressing your friends. And if you take that as your point of departure, right, it, it makes sense that the people who are going to get the most attention are the people who say the most extreme things that push, push the boundaries. The problem is that when those people get signals from other people, right, when they get a like or a new follower for saying something perhaps increasingly extreme, they wrongly understand that as a signal from society, you know, everyone about what's good or what's bad. 
when in reality, a tiny fraction of all social media users, about 6% of all Twitter users generate about 76% of all content about politics. Those people are the most extreme people on social media. Unfortunately, the way we've empowered that minority of extreme voices has profoundly distorted the landscape. And that's why I call this book uh, Breaking the Social Media Prism, because I think we need to first and foremost understand that polarization is about bridging the gap between social media and reality. You mentioned in your book a concept of the looking glass self. What does that mean and, and how does that play out on social media? Yeah, it's a very old idea. We're sort of constantly running experiments on our identities. You know, you can see this most clearly in kids, but we all do it. Each day we wake up, we present a version of ourselves to others, and then we observe in our social environment what identity sort of seems to work, what gives us a sense of status, what other people seem to like, and so on and so forth. And then we tend to cultivate those identities that give us a sense of status and, and belonging. Problem is we very often misunderstand the reactions of others, and we very often wind up pursuing identities that are, let's just say, uh, imperfect, or, or in the case of you know, modern social media, particularly extreme. You know, you can sort of crudely break social media users into two categories. You have these sort of extreme folks, and then you have the much more prominent, although less visible, moderates on social media. For a moderate, let's say, you know, you've, you've got a happy life, you've got a nice job, you, maybe you've got kids. Talking about politics is sort of all uh, cost, no benefit, right? It's a liability. If, whereas if you are someone who in your day-to-day life lacks a sense of belonging and status, and, I, and there's a lot of people out there who are at the, the margins right now and really suffering and feel isolated, social media and particularly politics on social media has become a kind of refuge where you can gain a kind of micro-celebrity for voicing your extreme views, however deleterious for the rest of us. Perhaps I should have asked this question before, Chris. What's the point of social media? I mean, what does it do? I think this is the most important question that all of us should be asking right now. When we, you know, wander onto a place like Twitter or Facebook, you know, we're, we're very, very rarely self-aware. If we look at Facebook or Twitter, they give us these prompts. You know, a prompt is something like, what's happening right now? Or what's going on, right? There is no point to Twitter. There's no point to Facebook. We all make up our own purpose. And so the problem is, you know, without a purpose, we shouldn't be surprised if platforms devolve into either mediocre content, which we see a ton of, or this kind of unfettered battle of extremism that I think we see in the political sphere a lot. And so one of the things I'm sort of most interested in doing is, is creating a new generation of social media users who are more self-aware, who sort of, sort of think carefully about what, why am I logging on to social media right now? Is it to validate you know, my sense of self? Is it to learn about the conflict in Ukraine? Is it to entertain myself for a few minutes? Those are all valid reasons to to use social media to some degree. But I think most of us just sort of wander off onto the platforms without any self-awareness. I think a lot of us blame the social media 
billionaires, the Mark Zuckerbergs, now Elon Musks, for juicing up the algorithm, for making things even worse, for influencing our behavior. But what you seem to be saying is the problem to a large extent is not them, it's us. Well, I don't want to only blame us. There's a lot of blame to go go around. And I would still place a lot of blame on, on tech companies. And, and I think things could have been much different if different decisions were, were made. But I do want to disabuse people of the idea that there's some kind of magical switch that Mark Zuckerberg can flip deep inside Facebook and all of this would, would suddenly you know transform. There's a supply and a demand problem, right? We've got algorithms, yes, but we've also got an extremely angry country a lot of people who feel compelled to share those views online. Um, you know, a lot of the things we hear, like echo chambers, we've already discussed that, right? The, the idea that stepping out of the echo chamber might not be so straightforward. Turns out echo chambers are much less prevalent than we first thought. So probably they only apply to a small group of heavily political users, according to research from Oxford, um, NYU, and, and, and other places. So just to clarify, People who live in echo chambers are only exposed to one set of opinions from a very narrow perspective. Yeah, and part of the reason for that is because most people just don't follow politics at all. Most people are on social media to talk about sports or video games. And so there's really only a small minority of people who really get into it on politics. They happen to be extremely vocal. And so we misunderstand them as, as a huge part of social media, but they're actually a very small part of it. And there's also been some research on the limited impacts of algorithms on political beliefs. Researchers working with Facebook did a large-scale study during the 2020 election and discovered that at least at that point in time, the algorithm didn't change people's attitudes or behaviors. We hear a lot about foreign influence and misinformation campaigns, and we, we hear that, you know, well, Facebook could have done a better job keeping the Russian Internet Research Agency off our platforms. And now we have two or three studies that suggest the impact of those campaigns has been relatively limited. We hear people talk about targeted advertising in Cambridge Analytica and how, you know, social media platforms have weaponized, um, you know, these kind of media for, for political influence. But again, the evidence that this actually worked is actually very scant. We're speaking with Chris Bale of the Polarization Lab at Duke University about the impact of social media and what to do about it. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. And these podcasts are part of our fall series about the impact of polarization on politics and people. The shows are funded in part by a grant from Solutions Journalism Network. And speaking of networks, How Do We Fix It? is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Podcasts that look at civil engagement, democracy reform, and a lot more. Learn more at democracygroup.org. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA, get a quote today. To Randall's for great deals throughout the store. This week at Randall's, get fresh pork butt roast for $1.29 per pound and Kellogg's Kid Cereal, Nature's Own Bread, and Pop Tarts for only $1.99 each. Visit Randall's.com or head in store for more deals. Now, more from our interview with Duke University professor Chris Bale 
about the impacts of social media and the giant companies who run these platforms. I don't want to absolve them of, of, of blame, but the complicated thing here is there's no easy fix uh, that doesn't involve both platforms and users. And so one of the things I think we need to do is, again, create a more reflective generation of social media users, right? Yeah, we used to say, you know, you should vote with your wallet. And now I think we all need to recognize that we're voting with our like buttons and, and our comments, right? Every time we interact with a platform, we're saying more of this, please. So there's user-based stuff, but there's also stuff platforms could do. We've been talking about the impact of uh, social media on on us as citizens, as voters. Uh, what about the impact of this polarization on our politicians? Does the extremism, as you say, driven by a very small percentage of people on Twitter, does that extremism online give some politicians a false idea of what voters really want? A, a, a sort of exhibit A for this might be Ron DeSantis. And a lot of people are saying, you know, his team is too online. That a lot of the anti-woke stuff is reflective of sure. a pretty small group of, of people on Twitter, and yet they sometimes talk as if that's the entire Republican base. You could say the flip side on the left, their uh, obsession, say, with trans issues might be very, very motivating mm -hmm. for a, a, a small minority, but barely on the radar of a lot of less involved Democratic voters. So what do you think of this idea? Are our politicians getting a skewed idea of who the, who is, who, what the public thinks and what they want? Yeah, I mean, politicians are people too, right? And I would actually go further than politicians. I would say our, our whole journalism system relies too heavily on social media to take the temperature of the public right now. And that's where things become really dangerous because all this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If a Washington Post journalist spends 30 minutes reading Twitter about the reaction to a presidential debate, right? And then uh, says, oh, well, you know, Ron DeSantis must have really screwed up because the 30 people that were, you know, highest up in my newsfeed said so, right? Like, obviously, this is, this is not an objective, empirical poll of the American public. Politicians do it. Journalists do it. We all do it. It's human nature. We all want to just think, oh, if I log into threads, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, for 20 minutes, I can sort of figure out what's going on when the reality is, again, you're seeing a, a, a prism-like effect. You know, you're seeing whatever a small, angry group of heavily interested in politics people think was important that day. Do you think it's true that social media is having a more profound impact on our behavior than it is on our core opinions? Yeah, you know, when we look at the public opinion data over time, you're right. Our attitudes on even pretty polarizing things like abortion, immigration, haven't moved that much. It's not that we, we don't disagree. It's just that we've disagreed for a long time and those numbers haven't moved very much. What has moved, though, is not our attitudes about how to fix problems, what, you know, what, what our attitudes on the actual issues. It's what we think of each other, what a Democrat thinks about a Republican or the Republican Party independent of their ideas, like, you know, to the person. And here we see a pretty market shift. And somewhere around 2012, 2016, huge increase in negative affect between Republicans and Democrats. 
You say you want to help develop a new generation of social media users. What are the skills or the approaches to social media that might help people have a healthier relationship with these platforms? I think the main thing is be aware of how your behavior contributes to the aggregate patterns that we're seeing, right? But if we are just, you know, charging online and, and you know, sitting in partisan trenches all day, in the aggregate, we're throwing fuel on the fire. So we need to think and, and pick and choose our battles more carefully. I think also we need to think about what kind of behavior we want to reward, right? Do we want to reward the person who takes down the other side in a sarcastic way? Or do we want to reward the person who says something that, that creates a reasonable compromise? That's a very foreign idea on social media right now, right? Like n not many people think, oh, I'm going to go online and find the person who came up with the compromise, right? It's just a, it's sort of a foreign idea. But it doesn't have to be that way. One of the reasons that things are that way is that we've rewarded engagement, right? We've rewarded posts that generate a lot of likes or comments in, inside every social media company. But to the extent that most of these companies have an advertising model, the goal is to go viral, right? The goal is to push things as far to as many people as possible. But there are other models. Several years ago, we worked with Twitter in my lab to develop something we called a bridging algorithm. And the idea here is that instead of pushing the polarizing but engaging stuff that currently gets pushed, what if you could identify posts that both, in the US anyways, Republicans and Democrats both like or seem to appreciate? And what if you could use that to incentivize more bridging, more compromise and consensus? One really neat thing Twitter did prior to the acquisition uh, by Elon Musk was to implement this algorithm that we designed as part of its crowdsourced misinformation detection program called Birdwatch. And what they discovered is if they boosted messages that were consensus building, it resulted in a 25 to 35% decrease in the sharing of misinformation on the platform. So there are real solutions. Facebook spends $1 billion a year on content moderation. If you can cut down that negative content by 25 to 35%, you're saving Facebook a quarter of a billion dollars, right? That gets the C-suite's attention. You know, there's new ways we can use AI to nudge people to engage in more productive conversations, for example, some of the new research we're doing. There's a lot that we can do. Um, but it's again, it's going to require effort by both users and the platforms themselves. Chris, are you optimistic? I mean, I'm optimistic because I'm I teach young people, right? I, I teach Duke students who are who are brilliant and and they are online all the time. And I think a lot of people who are older tend to look on that generation and just be like, "Oh, you're missing out. You know, you're not you're not having the genuine social connections that we did or you're, you know, you're being distracted." And and when I talk to young people, I see that social media actually at least among Duke students, and that's an important caveat seems to have an overall positive effect, or at least they perceive it to have a positive effect on their lives. They're not unaware of the problems. They know more about misinformation than their parents, believe me. And in fact, we actually have data points on this. The people most likely to share fake news are those over 60. So these folks know how social media works. They've thought carefully. They grew up with it, right? They Yes, they've had painful experiences. Maybe they've been bullied. They've had these experiences. 
but they also have, uh, you know, so many positive experiences and those just get completely left out of the story of social media right now, right? We're all deeply concerned and rightly about extremism, misinformation, all sorts of, you know, now AI is a whole new threat and it's going to be super scary to see how that plays out in the next election. But there's also a lot of good stuff that happens on social media. And we forget that, you know, I think we've almost overcorrected. And so the interesting question to me is, how can we redesign social media in a way that it would incentivize more pro-social behavior? For everything that, that I might not like about a site like Twitter, it has for years allowed me to stay connected to a community of scientists that I would have never met in person. And I think that's true for so many people from so many different fields. And so, you know, the big question for me is social media is not going away, right? We're going to continue to use it, but we're also early in the story of social media. So what's the future going to look like? And might we be able to intervene before these processes become so locked in that they're irreversible? in order to outline a different future for social media. And I think never has there been more opportunity than right now. I'll take that. That's a fairly hopeful way to end this conversation. Chris Bale, thanks very much. Thank you. Chris Bale joining us on How Do We Fix It? And before our scintillating conversation, Jim, a recommendation. Richard, I think it's your turn this week. It is. And... It's a movie, uh, Past Lives, which is a new film, and it's her first, made by Korean-Canadian-American playwright Celine Song. And Past Lives follows two childhood friends, first in South Korea and years later in New York. Uh, It takes place across two decades. And I think that Past Lives is one of the very best films I've seen in years. It has great emotional depth. Uh, never gratuitous or shallow. And in the words of one reviewer, Past Lives is a wistful what-if story about two people, the children they were, and the adults they become. One reason I went to see it is because it has, as the lead actor, Greta Lee, who plays such a striking role in something else I'd recommend, which is the current TV series, uh, The Morning Show. Uh, Greta Lee has subtle power and emotional depth. She's a joy to watch. And Past Lives is, is a pretty serious film. It demands concentration from the audience and I think presents another strong argument for why we should see films in cinemas, in movie theaters, rather than on large screen TV sets. So you saw this in New York City? Yeah, I did. And and the the cinematography of various parts of New York is absolutely beautiful. So this is very much a New York and I guess a Seoul, South Korea film. And next, our conversation. My takeaway is there's a great deal more that we don't know than we do when it comes to social media's impact on human behavior and even on political polarization, which is the subject of this series. Yeah, and these are very complex systems. You know, I've spent a lot of time studying 
uh, industrial disasters and the space shuttle. And in that field, there's this, and not just in that field, there's this concept of emergent behaviors. You take this complicated system, you set it in motion, and sometimes it will do things that no one predicted, that weren't that weren't part of the model. And safety depends on having ways to identify those early and giving operators, you know, tools to address it if all of a sudden your your plane or your nuclear power plant or your oil rig or whatever is is doing something that that you didn't expect, you didn't train for. And I think that when you think about putting all these people together and interacting, in some ways it's the ultimate complex system. So we shouldn't be surprised if there's these these emergent behaviors, these things that come up out of it that that we didn't expect. And I think this kind of political extremism. And Chris says that we need to experiment with different potential fixes and do more research into how these systems or algorithms that are at the heart of social media actually impact people's political behavior. So what if we could pick flavors of algorithms, you know, the warm and fuzzy version or the the more intense contrarian version? It sure would be interesting to as a user to have access to to see what happens if I set the settings uh, in in different ways to encourage different kinds of conversations. I love that idea. I know what you'd pick. You'd, you'd pick the contrarian. Not no. And I'd I, pick the warm and I'd I'd pick the you warm would and definitely fuzzy. pick the warm and fuzzy. <laughs> the thing about what I call contrarian though is like the smart contrarian. You know, I love, for example, as you know, I love writers who come at questions from the liberal side with a skeptical view, like Ezra Klein or Matt Iglesias, or he mentioned David Brooks, you know, who comes at the conservative world from a perspective that's very, some would think, too quick to, you know, to criticize conservative perspectives. But it shows refreshing open-mindedness that, that I like. I was ribbing you. I was teasing, <laughs> but but uh, I wasn't being entirely serious. Although I don't know, it's gonna be hard to to design the perfect algorithm for for each person. One thing, and I I guess I'm just naturally attracted to to hopeful outcomes. But one thing I think that Chris said right at the end of our conversation, which did give me some hope, is that young people, at least in his experience, and he does teach at an elite university. appear to be more aware of how they're being played on social media than older people. And and that's kind of understandable. And and maybe that means that over time, the, the social and political impact of this relatively new form of technology won't be as great as it is now. It's How Do We Fix It? Our producer's Miranda Schaefer, and we are a production of our little podcasting and media consulting firm, Davies Content. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.